Well, we've been in this season we've called 21 Days of Prayer. We're beginning the year in a simple way. We're setting aside and saying the first thing that matters is us pursuing God and asking him to move and lead in our lives. And so we've been doing that and continue to do that. And we're in the third week of a series surrounding that. And our emphasis in this series has specifically been about this battle we're in, this spiritual battle in the world we live in, that there is indeed a battle going on. We're gonna look today at a letter Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In this letter, and the place we're gonna look is in chapter 10, I'm just gonna give you the verse before it, which he says this very simply, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. In other words, we are in a battle, but it's unlike how everything else is battled for in the world. And so a bit of it is we must set aside the way we think and live. There's something different that he's talking to us about. And he take, we take it up in the next verse. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So I want you to consider this with me for a minute because while we might say even being Christians for some years, most of our lives, many of you who have been for a while might, might say, you know what, that's not... We, I get it, but if we really talk about it, if we're really honest, I think we would have to say we, we understand the weapons of this world much better than we understand spiritual weapons. That in a sense, we're not trained in it, and we don't often even talk about it. Let me give you a picture of it this way. Jack uh, Gropel, is a, he's a scientist, a, a really a psycho psychologist and, and scientist that works with athletes and works with people at high performance and function. And what happened is he, he's spoken at many leadership conferences. I heard him a few years, at the, years ago at the Leadership Summit. And uh, he was telling about a place that many of these high capacity, both leaders and athletes go for training. So it's down in Florida, it's in the Swamplands, and he has this activity he has them do on one of the first days. They're told to go out into this forest, into this swampy area. They need to make their way through the forest together as a group. They'll get to the edge where there's a fence. They'll find a ribbon on it. They're to get it and bring it back. Sounds simple. He does give them the caution. There's a wild boar in this place somewhere. Be on the lookout and be careful. Now, he has all sorts of different people that come. On this one particular day, he had NFL athletes, a group of them, large linemen who were well-trained, strong, ready-to-fight kind of guys. And then he was also doing a, a CIA uh, operatives training later that day, but he did this same exercise for both. Now, this is a really grainy picture of what happened, but I do want you to see it. I want you to kind of consider with me the courage of these NFL athletes. And in case I didn't tell you too, the one kind of catch to all this was there was not actually a wild boar. He just had cameramen out in the in this area that they just shake leaves and shake branches. So take a look at these courageous NFL players right now. Never gets old for me. <laughs> I mean, these are high capacity, well-trained athletes that go to battle. Now, granted, they have, they have equipment on, but they were not prepared for what was coming, were they? It was out of their zone. They had no idea how to deal with this in a way of combat. Now, interestingly, the CIA were well-trained for it. So when the same thing happened, they simply took their posture of combat ready because they were actually prepared for what was coming. Now I say that to you because 
we have to begin to consider what Paul is saying here is we are not prepared in life for the battle we're going to face. There is a different kind of battle with a different kind of weapon. And he wants us to be ready for this, this idea that there's a different emphasis in the life of a follower of Jesus. Now he continues to speak about this. On the contrary, these aren't the same weapons of the world, but let me tell you about the weapons Jesus has given us. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, I, I know this will not be new for, for many of you who are regulars here. If you're not, we want it to become ingrained. And even though us regulars may even say we get it, I don't know if we get it. He says we have divine power. Now, Paul later says it this way, the same power that conquered the grave, that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us. Like, you don't even realize it, but you are superheroes. It's the best way I can say it. God has given you a power, an authority that we don't even realize. And because we're so acclimated to the way things work in the physical world around us, we don't realize how different this power is and how different it is to work. Now, that's the first thing Paul wants us to get. There's more at our access than we know. The second part of it is he says to demolish strongholds. Now, in case you don't know what a stronghold is, the stronghold is literally almost every city in the ancient world and any that were to be sustained through any battle that might come built a fortress around it, walls around it, that call and are called a stronghold. In other words, a stronghold is what protects the city. It's what keeps the outside from changing it or taking it over and protects its fabric of who it is and who they're for. Now, that would have been significant in Corinth because about 200 years before Paul is writing, Corinth had gone through a destruction. In fact, what had happened was a Roman general had come there and had literally smashed the walls, demolished the stronghold, is how they would call it, of their entire city and taken over. Now, since that time, 200 years later, they've rebuilt but they still have this place called the Acora Corinth, Acro Corinth, which is kind of this older version of Corinth. It's it's place of antiquity, and these crumbled walls are still up there. They can all see them, in other words. So anyone who's reading this gets it from Paul. Oh, what you're saying is, even as a city is fortified, God has given us this divine power to take those fortifications that are not of Him, these evil forces around us, and demolish them. Now, it's important we understand what he's speaking about. He calls them strongholds. He's speaking of this evil that is around them. He's not simply speaking of problems that go on. In fact, Paul speaks of it again in in Ephesians. We looked at this last week. He spoke about how struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers, what? Of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, Paul's wanting us to begin to understand that this is not simply us living life, just discovering Jesus and walking in it. There's a battle going on. And there's an enemy that actually builds a stronghold, builds a place around areas, builds a place around people that gets them living in a way different than what God intends. If you will, there's a battle going on between heaven and hell. 
Now I know, in our, again, in our 21st century sensibilities, there are many that say, why would you take that and believe it in scripture? And they only pick certain things to believe that seem reasonable. Well, they're wrong. I don't know how to say it other than that. And the reality is we have a heavenly battle going on. Now let me give you just a framework for this briefly. You've heard this, whether you've been around church or not, people talk about the devil, Satan, known as a lot of different names. But the, the origin of Satan himself is angelic. God made him as Lucifer to be the one that would lead the other angels, all of them, and the created beings in worship of God. Somewhere along the way, it tells us, Scripture teaches, that Lucifer himself became enamored with the idea of being worshipped rather than leading worship. In other words, he got enamored not with God being lifted up, but he wanted to be lifted up. And he turned and wanted to go his own way. And it says, God sent him out. God kicked him out of heaven, if you will, and must reside spiritually in proximity to those in earth. And a third of the angels go with him. So what I want you to understand is there is legitimately a battle between heaven and hell. Now, what we also don't talk much about, but scripture gives picture of, is that angels aren't just kind of individually around doing things, though there are angels at different levels, and we would say demons the same way, because by the way, demons tend to mimic what angels do. Satan mimics who Jesus is. There's not originality, but there is mimicry. So I'll give you a picture of this. In Revelation, it tells us that each of the cities that a letter is written to, each of these churches, there's an angel representing that city. In other words, there's some hierarchy that God gives to the protection and oversight of his people, not just individually, but even as a collection, as an area. And that's what Paul's kind of giving in, image of in the demonic side, saying there are actually strongholds, not just there's enemies that want to get you individually, but that work collectively. There's a system to this. There are powers and authorities working to bring destruction to people and to areas. I know you were excited to hear that today, but it's important you hear it today. I think we tend to minimize or dismiss this. Let me give you a, a really clear picture of this. It's in the book of Daniel. Daniel is this wonderful follower of Yeshua, of God himself. And he's in this culture in exile and he's lifted to a pretty high position. Israel at this time is beginning to be brought out of exile. Now he's had lots of things go on. He's been very firmly sticking to God and being faithful to him, even when the culture told him not to. In fact, some of you will be familiar, even if you aren't much with scripture, with a story called Daniel in the lion's den. He does something he's not supposed to, which is holding true to who God is, and he's thrown into a den of lions. Now, I think we've talked about this before, but anybody have any idea about how old Daniel is during that time? He is probably around 80 years old. So I think oftentimes we see it, we see young strapping Daniel that probably got the best of it and won out. He's a frail old man. And God moves in it, which I love. I love the fact that it shows God's power. I love that it shows God moving in his life later in life, because what does our culture teach? The best is early on. So all of you as you get older, enjoy it, you're done. It's totally contrary to God, isn't it? I mean, God does great things. He even, oh, Abraham and Sarah have a kid in their old age. Like, that's wonderful for them. Great for them. That frightens me. <laughs> but it's a demonstration of God saying, why don't we look ahead to life continuing in me? You realize that's the one thing that gets better with age, is faith and maturity in him. Everything else 
is falling apart and changing in a different trajectory. Till we get to heaven and get new bodies again, it all gets better. But in this situation with Daniel, he's found out some horrible news of what's going on. And it literally says he fasts and prays for 21 days. Now it's a unique fast. It's actually called a Daniel fast because of what he did. He, they were all reading, eating lush and great foods, things that would strengthen and kind of be opulent in that way. And he chooses to do a very narrow survival eating. And it's a statement of his fasting for God. And it says he prayed and cried out for 21 days. Doesn't tell us what, doesn't tell us how. He's crying out because he sees the mess of what's going on. Now what happens is after these 21 days, he has a visit an angelic kind of visit. People speculate whether it's the Lord or an angel himself, but this angelic visit, and the angel begins to tell him, there's been, I've, I've been coming to help you, but I've had a 21-day battle with a demonic force, a hierarchy demonically to get here. And suddenly we get this little window into the battle going on. And by the way, it gives us our first picture of how to to engage. Because what does Daniel do for 21 days? He prays. And he fasts. It's one of the things for me the church has lost. We pray for a little bit. We pray for things we think are attainable. And fasting is something we do for our health. But there's power in it. And God moves through it. And the first thing we need to know is if we are to live in this battle the way God calls us to, we will live through prayer and fasting. Now, what I love about it is it's not saying we even know what to pray about. Sometimes we're asking the Lord, we don't know what the stronghold is. We don't know what the struggle is, but God, you show us and you move in it. Imagine our commitment in that. That's the first piece I want you to see in this. And we'll continue then with where this goes in the passage and offer some more helps, I hope. This is how he continues about these strongholds. We demolish, and this is what they are, arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. He's giving us a window now into how demonic strongholds are built. They're built through arguments and pretension. Arguments and things that make it seem normal and right to live in a way we shouldn't, not just me individually, but us, and a stronghold is built around a city, around an area, around a nation. So, so I'll, I'll use this as an easy example. None of us will feel threatened by it. But Las Vegas, what's it known as? Sin City. How would you like to have that reputation? So what do you think the arguments and pretension that's been raised that, that we would normalize that? Things like, you know what, gambling is a great recreation. The industry brings lots of economy to the area. And we could go on and on and on with the arguments. It doesn't really affect us. It doesn't impact the world around us and the stronghold is built. Are you getting a picture of this? Around an area. Now it's safe to say other places. I have, I will tell you in recent years, just been asking Lord to help me understand what it is we battle with in our area. And some of these are things I think we battle with even as a nation, but some of them are unique to us. So I'm just giving you my speculations and things I'm wrestling with, wondering are these things God's saying about our area that are strongholds? So I'll give you one of them that I think is a stronghold and I would call it busyness. I have never known a time where we argue and explain why busyness is okay and normal. This is what we say about busyness, I have to. It starts with young families, by the way. 
or, or actually could even start with singles because what we say to singles are, you don't need a life, do whatever we need, stay busy. Then people, if they begin to have kids, are told for your kids to live the way other kids are gonna live, to have a fair shake at this, guess what you're gonna have to do? You're gonna have to be busy. Do you hear the argument? Do you hear the pretension? The pretension is there's no way you could live as a Christ follower and not be busy. You have to be to live successfully. So, so do you think that's the way God wants us to live? No way. Is it possible busyness itself is a stronghold? Are you getting a picture of what I mean? And I'm just throwing these out for you to consider with me. I'm not declaring them all. I think one of the other ones for us is I would call it comfort and recreation. We live in a very enjoyable area, don't we? Have you ever felt like everyone is entitled to recreation and comfort? Have you ever said to yourself, oh, I, I owe this to me. I, I really, I need to be comfortable. I mean, I'll do something as long as it doesn't take me out of my comfort zone. I am glad to help and give and serve as long as it doesn't cost me and it's out of the overflow. Comfort is king. Do you see how that would be an argument and a pretension that would build a stronghold? Because what does Jesus ask us to do? Oh my goodness, set aside your comfort in your life and surrender it because something better comes by actually giving up those things that you think you so desperately need. I think of the stronghold we have in the joy of loving the grace of Jesus that we've ignored the call of Jesus. And we're very content with where we are in our pursuit of him in our lives and how we live it out. I'll give you a simple example of this. It's harder because those of you who are here won't feel this today, but in case you don't know it, church has become one of many options in the life of people. We're basically, we're another option alongside of skiing this weekend, uh, kids go into activities. You know, if we're not too tired from Saturday night, and, and then in Michigan, if the weather's not too bad or too good, we'll come. In case you didn't know, that's actually true. Do you know as a pastor, I pray that it will be kind of bad, but not too bad? Don't make it too sunny in the summer, God, so they'll at least wait till afternoon to go. God, don't make it so bad that they go, I can't get here. But they can get to lots of other things. I'm telling you, there's a stronghold that says, it's good enough. And we've settled for a faith that is cultural, convenient, comfortable. A stronghold gets built around that. I'll give you one that probably is maybe the most troubling to me living in this area. Um, it's just this idea that I think we sometimes feel we're better than other people. I, I've heard it. I've even experienced it. It was funny. I was, I was talking to this at, at nine o'clock and I thought, if you talk to anybody who doesn't live in the Tri-Cities, you know what they say about it? You people think you're better than everyone else. And so it's like, oh, it must be, we must really think this. Now the bummer is, now that we have people in Coopersville and Muskegon, they basically look at us and go, you think you're better than us, but you're not better than us. We're better than you because we don't think you're better than us. So because we're better than you, we're better than you now, and you're worse than us. And they've done the very same thing. They just found a new way to rationalize it. It's a mess. And make no mistake, we don't even just do this with our area. We do this with how we think and believe and act. We're so horrible to each other if we don't think the same way, look the same way, act the same way. There's this stronghold that says, if you're not like me, you're less than. And it's, it's probably the one that kills me the most because I've actually had people say it to me 
they will dismiss other people's behavior and they'll dismiss an entire people group. And what it ultimately says is that group is less than I am. In other words, God's image bearing is faulty in them and I got it right. Tell me that's not a stronghold. And it's one of those things where I go, I can't change it, but I'm feeling like I am gonna cry out to God to break it because I don't know what to do but the hostility and the mess it's giving is increasing in our day and age. And I, and I will tell you, I don't know what will happen in the next year, but given our, and I bring this up, not because I'm politically charged, because I actually really, really hate politics. Uh, but I'm so disheartened by how we are with each other and the idea that we're given one of two options. And whichever it is, we're either a Christian or not, depending on how we pick. And somehow we built a stronghold saying you can't just have Jesus. In the ancient world, you had to have Jesus and be circumcised. In our world, you have to have Jesus and assigned to the right party. Oh my goodness, is that not a stronghold? You bet it's a stronghold. We'll never agree on all that stuff. The only way it'll change is breaking it down and how we treat each other in it. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. Oh, I love what Paul says about this. I love the beauty of how he says it in this. And I love even, you know, Paul's disposition in the letter to Corinth is one of incredible confession and humility. When he talks to the Corinthian church, he basically tells them, you really aren't that impressive. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. You don't need to be. God is. And he loves to take the unimpressive and work his power through that because he doesn't love power the way the world does. True power is unimpressive, surrendering, needy humility. In fact, I'm convinced that one of the steps in this is what I would call humble confession. I think one of the steps of breaking these down is sometimes by proxy. I'm not saying all of you even do this, but I think we need to begin to confess to the Lord. God, I'm so sorry that I believed a lie that busyness is what will make life better. I am so sorry and forgive me, God, that I believed a lie that comforts you. God, forgive me that I've settled for recreation instead of restoration. Oh God, forgive me that I've somewhere thought I'm better than others and bring humility and life to me. Do you know it's one of the beautiful things our most powerful tool in many ways is simply confession? It's not doing anything other than agreeing that we're a mess. That's an awesome deal. Like you don't even realize it, but that access is the very power of God. The most powerful moment in history is not Jesus standing up and going, I win, I beat you. It's take me down. Go ahead. You think power's gonna win it, take me down. Do whatever you think, use all the power you can, and guess what? That's how I went. I'll take it. I will lower myself and take it and that defeats your strongholds of power. That's the center of the gospel. Humble confession is a huge part of this for us. He finishes saying, take every captive, every thought captive to make it to obedience of Christ. We, we regularly use this verse um, very simply to talk about temptation. God, help me to take this thought captive. I'm thinking something that's tempting. And it's not that that's not a good application, but it's not what he's talking about here. He's just talked about strongholds. 
He's talked about the things that argue and have every pretension against the knowledge of God. What he's telling us here is, guess what? You and I need to have the mind of Christ because that's where we begin to see these strongholds. It's in the mind where this battle begins. And it's not just in the individual mind, it becomes the collective mind because one mind after another mind after another agrees and it becomes the way we go, thus the stronghold. He's saying, guess what? You have to learn in your mind to begin to have the mind of Christ. It's a simple thing that we're to ask. God, give me your heart and your mind in this. Let me give you a picture of how we miss it and don't do it from our own context. Uh, I'm, many of you who've lived in the area a while will remember for most, at least of the times I've lived here, we had this cross up on Dewey Hill and it was allowed to have, we even had nativity up there, everybody loved it. Someone came into town and felt it was violating religious or their kind of freedom from religion. It got taken down and you'd have thought everybody was, we wrecked, like Christ was gone because the cross was gone on a, on a, on a hill. Now, this is what I mean about not having the mind of Christ. So I remember during this time, I'm not on Facebook anymore. This was one of the things that made me want to get off. Uh, I started to watch the vitriol and hatred from Christians. People would write things like, we shouldn't have this in our city. And, and the Christians would write back, hey, if you don't like it, don't, you don't like it, leave. If you don't like it, get out of here. You don't belong here. We're so loving that what we're saying is, we will want you to be with us as long as you agree and are like us. Do you understand how that's not the mind of Christ? In fact, it's so funny to think we argued about it. When Understand this. What do you think matters about the cross? It's that you and I take it up daily, right? And we actually live like Jesus. So do you have more stock in it being on a hill or being in you? Are you getting the picture of what I mean? And by the way, being in you, you'll be loving and you'll act like Christ. Being on a hill, you'll be feisty and living for a power that is like the way the world lives. I just wanted to give us one picture of it, though I think we could find it in many settings. His last piece of this is we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Paul gives us this beautiful way to kind of look at how can, I, how can we be a part of demolishing strongholds? And I wanna go through them again. Simply that we begin to pray and fast. We ask God, help us to see where these strongholds are and help us to pray in response that you would take them down, that we would begin to live differently. Pray for courage in the places that we've settled for ways, living apart from Christ. Pray for love in the places that we're being so hateful and destructive. Pray for boldness and surrender where we live in comfort. You can picture on your own what might God call us to do in praying and fasting. And make no mistake, I want to pray for this as one of your leaders, but my prayers alone are not like the power of our prayers. I am calling you to be part of this. We, together in Christ, can pray for strongholds to be taken down. We need, together, to pray in Christ that strongholds will be taken down. The second piece is we can humbly confess. You and I can admit, we can admit in our own failures, in our own doing, the older I get as a follower of Jesus, the more I realize I can't simply change anything. Like, I'm a mess. I, I love people that are so incredibly self-disciplined. They don't even, they just do it on their own. I'm like, I wonder how they wrestle with, well, you realize in your own power, you need Christ. So I wonder what they go, I'm just fine on my own. Fortunately, I'm such a mess, I need him, but it's unfortunate too. What I'm saying is, I have learned the power of just saying to God, I don't know what to do. But God, I believe you have the power to work and change me. I'm just gonna confess this. 
And the crazy part is, I seem to see movement in the ongoing process of that. And then I think of the beauty and the power of us confessing as one small little church, these things that we see around us, saying, God, on behalf of others, I confess this. On behalf of our city, I confess this. On the behalf of the area we live in, I confess this. Then the final thing is we're just asking, are my thoughts consistent with Jesus? What does scripture teach? Not the Jesus of culture, because everybody likes Jesus, but man, everybody makes him their own Jesus, don't they? We've twisted and messed up even with scripture. What if we just prayed this, give me the mind of Christ. Oh, give me the mind of Christ. Help me to start thinking like you do because the battle starts right here. Isn't that unbelievable? You know, that's, that's so central even to what a believer becomes. Paul says that you and I are rene- we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, God wants to begin in how we think to change how we are and who we are. You know, we entered this 21 days and it is a, it's really a step of faith. We do lots of things, lots of times. But we were saying, we think God is gonna do something different. If we just say, God, the beginning of the year, we're yours. We're first and foremost yours. And this is the way we offer it as we start our year off this way. And I wish I could parade up here the emails and texts I get. Some of them are so personal, I can't share their stories anyway. But what I keep hearing is God's moving. God's moving, God's moving, more Lord. God's moving in this. We want you to be part of it. We want it to lead to a new way to live and be. And we think God will meet us in it. Now we're in our final week. We'd invite you Monday through Thursday. We'll have times from noon to one. Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we're here. On Tuesday, we'll be in Coopersville and we're at the United Methodist Church there that is lending us their building that day so we can pray. We'd love to see at any of those. I wanna invite you just to continue in the posture prayer, taking that guide we gave you and going, I'm gonna keep praying and grow in this. And then I would love to see as many as you can be here on Saturday. Here's my challenge. Just don't decide not to go because it's the one day you sleep in because it's gonna make, it's gonna eat away at your free hour to do something that's probably not productive anyway. No offense, but I'm gonna offend you. You got plenty of time, don't do that. What might happen if you came on Saturday? You got to have some guided quiet on your own. You got to worship. And boy, if you need prayer for healing, you've got to ask us to pray for that. What might God do as we kind of seal this time together? And believe me, I'm asking that it's a beginning. It's an entryway into a new life of prayer, not just something we did and checked off and moved on. Let me pray for us. God, I know in the depth of my soul what we're talking about is true and needed. So I'm just asking whatever is in that, you'd start implanting that in each person where they need it today. I don't know what their next step is, but you do. So ignite them, inspire them, encourage them. Let them hear the call to pray and fast. Let them hear the invitation to humbly confess. Let them hear the challenge to have your mind. And God, let us be people that are part of demolishing strongholds in you. Anything that's an argument or pretension against the knowledge of you. I pray this in your name. Amen.